2: Dress. The history of fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common: every day, we all get dressed.
3: Welcome to Dress. The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan.
2: And Cassidy Zachary. Wall Dress listeners, I've said it once and I will say it say it again, I will shout it from the rooftops, I suppose. But um, if one good thing was to come out of Kim Kardashian's wearing of Marilyn Monroe's iconic happy birthday dress, it is that this controversy has raised the profession of fashion conservation out of relative anonymity
3: and into the spotlight. Yes. And and just to be clear here, we are not Happy about the damage done to this dress, but we are thrilled that it has introduced an entirely new audience to the highly skilled profession of preserving fashion history for present and future generations.
2: Yeah, and fashion is actually all too often homogenized under the umbrella term of textile conservation. But as we will learn today, it actually comes with its own unique set of requirements and skill sets that distinguish it from textiles or other items of dress. And as we will also learn today, Fashion conservation is both a science and an art form, so in addition to being integral to the life and display of a garment, fashion conservators are storytellers in their own right, and that includes today's guest, who is one of the greatest fashion storytellers of them all.
3: We are excited to take a deep dive into the profession of fashion conservation today with one of its leading experts, Sarah Scaturo, an instrumental and vocal advocate for the centrality and importance of the fashion conservator and fashion conservation within the museum space. Some of you may remember that Sarah joined us on Dressed back in 2018 when she discussed her and her team's work on the MET's 2018 exhibition, Heavenly Bodies. Fashion, and the Catholic Imagination, and at that time, Sarah was the head conservator for the Met's Costume Institute. Today, she speaks to us as the Eric and Jane Nord Chief Conservator of the Cleveland Museum of Art, and we are so happy to welcome her back to Dressed. Sarah, welcome back to
2: Dressed. It's such a pleasure to have you back with us today.
3: Thanks so much, Cassidy. It's wonderful to be
1: back to talk with you.
2: Yeah, so last time you were with us, we talked about your work as head of the CI, the Costume Institute at the Met. Uh, You were here talking about your work on the Heavenly Bodies exhibition. So our listeners are familiar with the field of fashion conservation, the profession, but maybe not. We didn't take like a huge deep dive. So I wanted to do that today. So can you maybe just provide us with maybe a general introduction to the profession of fashion conservator and kind of give us the parameters of this job and then how it's both similar and different from that of a textile conservator because those are actually the, the same thing.
1: Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so fashion conservation is a specific subset of the textile conservation discipline. So a fashion conservator in particular is someone who specializes in the preservation, conservation, and restoration of historic garments. Textile conservators work on both flat textiles and three-dimensional garments, but some of them are not really comfortable tackling the very specific physical and philosophical issues that a 3D garment might present, so they would prefer to only work on flat textiles. So, you know, museums rarely have the financial means to support such a highly individualized profession as fashion conservation. Of course, there are a few rare exceptions like the Met Museums and Costume Institute where I used to work um, and museums of fashion like FIT or Modem Museum in Antwerp. But even other museums like the Victoria and Albert in London ask their conservators to focus on both textiles and fashion. And so one's training will typically encompass both aspects. The one exception might be that some museums who do a lot of fashion exhibitions will also have on staff someone who is exclusively devoted to mounting costume, because mannequin dressing is both an art and a skill that is highly, highly specialized. Um, And costume mounting is so important to conveying the aesthetics of the garment, while also ensuring its physical safety and integrity. Um, So it's a role that has dual curatorial and conservation implications. And just one last point is that, you know, there are conservators in museums, but there are also conservators that work privately. And there are some excellent private conservation studios out there, including Atelier 9 in London, whose chief conservator, Sarah Glenn, used to actually work at the VNA, or Deirdre Windsor, who operates here in Massachusetts. And she is actually responsible for conserving and I mounting mean, a lot of the exhibitions that Patra's link card at the Peabody Essex um, curates.
2: Oh, wonderful. We love Patra. She's been a guest on the show. <laughs>
1: exactly.
2: <laughs> and then that's also something, you know, that's worth noting. You're in your current position as the Eric and Jane Nord chief conservator. You're at the Cleveland Museum of Art, as we mentioned in the intro. So you are in charge of everything, right? Can you talk just a little bit about what you're doing there currently? Because that's an example of what you just talked about.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, previously, I was the head conservator at the Costume Institute, which meant that I managed just one lab. But now I'm the chief conservator at the Cleveland Museum of Art, which is an encyclopedic museum. And that means I'm in charge of all the conservation labs, which is really cool. We have labs for Western paintings and, actually, quite uniquely, Asian paintings. There's only five museums in North America that have labs devoted to Asian paintings. We also have labs for paper, textiles, and objects frames. We have an analytical lab, a photography studio, paper prep areas, library. It's it's really wonderful. And the team here is just very devoted and very, very collegial and so excellent at their work.
2: Yeah, and I've really enjoyed watching your Instagram stories too cuz you posted I think the other day revealing, you know, the work you do on paintings is so fine, right? And and one either you or one of your conservators was revealing a signature on a painting that had been, you know, because of the age, had been hidden for all of these hundreds of years. So it's just I your job is so so cool. I can only imagine the day after day discoveries and joy that comes with what you do and we're going to learn all about it today. <sighs>
1: It is a pretty fun fun gig, I have to say. (laughs) Can we talk just a little bit
2: about, you mentioned the philosophical implications of fashion. And we've talked about this a little bit on dress, but I don't know that we've, I've always wanted to do like a deep dive episode into like what is fashion. But maybe we can talk just a little bit about why fashion is so different than dress and clothing. Because I've read a lot of your work and you talk about like the material element of fashion, but also the immaterial element of fashion, because it's part of this fashion system. So it's like imbued with all of these other meanings. It's not just clothing. Can you talk just a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I love this question. It really goes back to the issue of values. And so when a garment crosses a conservator's bench, we want to understand what is this? Who made it? Why did they make it? Who wore it? You know, what meanings does it have? And what we try to do is first really understand what it is that we're working on and what the goals of our project should be or could be. And then we try to manifest whatever it is those values tell us that we should try manifesting. And so when we think of the values of fashion, and I'm thinking really here of just the the typical high fashion system, you know, we think of values such as novelty, desire, freshness, craftsmanship, things like that. So we try to make sure that our techniques bring that forward. And it's not always possible, um, but sometimes it is. And, you know, it could be something as simple as, you know, being very attentive to cleaning or removing stains so that it pops, it looks bright and cheery or it could be something as simple as steaming so you know why put a dreary wrinkled dress on display when we could steam it and it looks crisp and smooth and gets new kind of volume and another way would be through the mannequin dressing process trying to make sure that we're getting the correct body for what it is that we're actually putting out there You know, I worked with Harold Cota, who used to be the curator in charge of the Costume Institute, and he had, you know, trained under Diana Vreeland, and he would always implore us to think about how the person who originally wore this garment must have wanted to feel. What must they have wanted people to think about when they saw them? You know, they wanted to be the epitome of fashion at the time. And so conservators are always trying to find a way to honor that and you know i have to emphasize that a conservator's actions are very context dependent so there might be a lot of people who have authority in what happens to an object and that could be the curator the owner but it could also be other kinds of representatives such as perhaps the communities that originally made this garment or used this garment and so what we try to do is we try to work with these people that are invested in the object and make it appear the way that they would have wanted it to appear. And that might sound kind of wishy-washy or easy, but it's actually very hard. And it can be a delicate process that requires a lot of listening and a lot of thought.
2: Yeah, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on because you have worked directly with fashion designers, for instance. And if you consider fashion as a work of art and you want to present it as it would have been when it was at its height of value, right? When it was valued as fashion, because as we know in fashion, one day it's fashionable, the next day it's not. And usually you're presenting fashion that's out of date by 60-some hundred 200 years, you know, you don't know. And so you, you're you tasked with kind of bringing this life back, as you mentioned, and presenting it based on, you know, any number of values, but you're trying to bring it back to life as it would have been when it was at its prime, right? So when you consider it as a work of art, I really love considering fashion as a work of art versus, say, Um, you know, other garments that maybe aren't valued as fashion um, are valued in different ways. But I think we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But I'd love to talk about the storytelling aspect of what you do. Because I don't think people consider conservators when they think about storytelling and objects. I think often you associate that with curators because that's literally their task or their job. But conservators are so intimately involved in the process of researching the life story of any given object in really beautiful ways, actually. Can you talk about the biography and life of objects and the role of the conservator as a creative agent in preserving but also interpreting that life?
1: Curators are responsible for selecting an object for display and often determining the narrative that surrounds the display. But it's up to the conservator to determine whether and how that display can be safely and aesthetically achieved. And additionally, you know, conservators are generating knowledge, which is often used to construct the curatorial narrative. And there's a lot of uh, intellectual property that actually goes into uh, a conservator's treatment report or condition report or technical analysis. Conservators are intimately entangled with the objects under their care. So that can be perhaps through performing technical analysis of the materials and techniques of fabrication. Or perhaps characterizing damage and kind of trying to understand how that damage occurred. You know, was it just like a champagne stain or a cigarette burn, or was it something totally different? However, all the best conservators I've worked with realize that you can't really understand an object without researching its biography or its life story. Like, who wore it, when, under what circumstances, and you know, how did it get passed down through time? And perhaps. That is one of the misconceptions about conservation is that conservators are only interested in the materiality of an object and so that they work within a framework of just science and craft but conservators are deeply engaged with the social and cultural meanings of what we're working on and we are very cognizant that our own actions represent a moment in the object's life that may have a long-lasting potentially even life-altering impact and we recognize and we are humbled by the fact that we are only temporary custodians charged with shepherding the object onto into the next generation.
2: Absolutely. And you talked a little bit about it there, but I just want to quote you too, because I read an interview with you and you said, conservators have a strong poetic and artistic sensibility. We keenly feel the aching beauty of the memories imbued in clothing. And more so than anyone else, because you're so intimately involved with these garments if you could talk a little bit about the condition report which is one of the very first things you do when you accession a garment curators might be more familiar with the outside of the garment but conservators are are inside the garment looking at all of these different things so you're intimately involved with this garment in a way that very very few people in its life probably have been can you talk a little bit about that
1: There are some curators who are also very, very intimately involved in the guts of a dress, let's just call it. But um, the conservator really, really gets into the guts when we have to do the condition report. And for those who don't know what a condition report is, it's the examination that conservators conduct whenever an object crosses their bench, And so this examination can happen if we're acquiring something or putting it on, you know, sending it out on loan or putting it on display, wanting to treat it or research it or anything. It's just kind of like a little health checkup. So in this condition report, you know, we truly examine it very, very deeply. And what we're looking for, quite sadly, are its flaws, right? We're not looking for how amazing and beautiful it is. Although, of course, we surely appreciate that (laughs) during our our looking, but we're looking for condition issues. We are looking for things that um, are an issue or a problem with the dress um, and that, furthermore, could potentially further damage the dress if it's not addressed or be aesthetically distracting. And so again we want to make sure that objects look their best on display and convey the intended messages that we want them to convey and so the condition reports lets us know kind of what we're up against and what it is that we need to do condition reports are also used just a quick note they are used uh, for legal purposes so they are used by insurance companies whenever you know if something were to get damaged things like that and i think so we like to think as conservators that there's a an altruistic inclination to the condition report, but it's often just as tied into the business administrative functions of a museum as well.
2: Yeah. But I also think it's really fascinating that condition reports become part of the life of the garment because you can have condition reports being conducted on garments that have been in collections for like, say, 100 years or 50 years. So that's I think that's really fascinating, too, because it's tracking the literal condition of the garment, but also when it's been displayed, et cetera, et cetera. I read in an interview with you where you were talking, and I just thought this was so fabulous, speaking of how intimate you get with the garments, about how you came face-to-face with Wallace Simpson's sweat stains. Yeah. Because you yeah. just don't associate sweat stains with someone who's so, you know, sophisticated, right? And who always looks like in prime fashion. But she's human, <laughs> and that human body is embeds itself on these garments.
1: Yeah, no, that was a really um, amazing moment. So speaking of the condition report, typically, you know, it it is done on objects over and over and over again as they're being used. Well, one object of the CI collection is Wallace Simpson's wedding dress that she wore when, when Edward VIII abdicated his throne. And it surprisingly did not have in the database a condition report. And that doesn't mean that it hadn't happened before it just somehow a paper condition report got lost um, and it, it just didn't have a record about what was its baseline health status and it was being considered for an exhibition and so I decided you know well let's let's do a condition report and see what is actually happening with it and it was very very fragile it's faded which is probably its most marked condition issue is that it used to be the Wallace Simpson blue, which is this bright cornflower blue, but it faded kind of to the sad dingy gray because of an instability in the dye, not because of any light or anything. But one thing I noticed was that she had shattered armpits and when I say she, I actually just anthropomorphized it. the <laughs> garment and the shattered shattered armpits. you know, we, we conservatives do tend to anthropomorphize or gender or misgender our objects sometimes. We should probably be a bit more careful. But um these shattered the shattered silk underarms struck me, and I was talking to a colleague, a collections manager at the costumes too, who walked by and said, "Well, you know, you know, look who she was marrying, you know, <laughs> look, look at what this event meant to the yeah. British monarchy. And it was like, yeah, I guess I'd be sweating too. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> exactly. But those are the types of things you just don't see because fashion exhibitions aren't really looking to celebrate the worn garment. They're trying to celebrate, you know, the garment at its height of fashionability and perfection, right?
3: Right. Although,
1: you know, there were Colleen Hill's wonderful exhibition, unraveled. And then there's this wonderful exhibition at the Rhode Island um, School of Design called In Your Advice, which is uh, curated by both conservators and curators.
2: Yeah. And I was going to ask you too, is obviously garments are treated differently depending on the institution that they're in, for instance, at the Cleveland Museum of Art versus like the Costume Institute, which is exclusively dedicated to high fashion exhibitions. I would love to see a worn clothing exhibition at the Met. I don't think it's gonna happen anytime soon, but one can put it out
1: there. (laughs) I I agree. I mean, the closest was the um, exhibition that I co-curated with a fellow called The Secret Life of Textiles, uh, Synthetic Materials. And that we had a case of degrading plastic accessories. And so that was the closest we got to showing. Sad, sad degrading pieces that are very poetic in their own decay.
2: I mean, we all respond to fashion, right? But I think we also all respond to the worn clothing because we're all intimately familiar with the value of wearing clothing and what happens to clothing when we wear it. While we're on the topic, can we talk about the treatment of a object's life, how that changes for a fashionable versus a non-fashionable garment. So again, fashion being imbued with these value systems, right, dress listeners, a perfect example of maybe a non-fashionable garment is like a lab coat, right? So <laughs> versus a Schiaparelli Haute Couture gown. So how would those two things be treated differently in a conservation lab?
1: Well, to be honest, I don't actually think they'd be treated that differently because, I mean, when I wear a lab coat, I want to look great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I want to look fashionable. And so I would probably make sure it's steamed and cleaned and dressed so it had a nice, crisp appearance, maybe a more professional appearance. But, again, it just goes back to what are the goals and what is – The museum that this object is being shown in, you know, if it's something that is a design museum, we might want to actually abstract a garment and focus just on the textile or on the cut of the line. And so the goal of a treatment is always context dependent. And it's it's hard to say, oh, we treat fashion objects like this and non-fashion objects like that, when the actual goal is to be respectful to the object and to try to do right by the object. I do cringe at the word world dress or ethnographic that, you know, is they're kind of being used to see stand-ins for the concept of clothing that doesn't come from Western fashion. And I think it's, hopefully been pretty disabused that um, non-Western dress cannot embody fashionable values. I mean, you know, non-Western dress is extremely fashionable and conservators and curators need to be considering this when they're approaching that. And there has historically been a tendency to show non-Western or um, simply cut garments on tea stands or flat. And Now, that's not always a wrong inclination because even some of these cultures would display their garments on special stands of some sort. However, there doesn't need to be this automatic reflex that if it's non-Western, it has to be shown flat or abstracted. Like Why not put it onto a 3D body? Why not put it onto a dress form or a mannequin? And we could speak more about mannequins. I mean, I think you need to have a whole episode just on mannequin dressing because the identity politics that are inherent in mannequin selection and mannequin choice, mannequin body, color, facial feature, all of that, it's just ripe with potential issues that need to be carefully thought through.
2: Oh, absolutely. There's so many parallels between mannequins and say, like the you know, controversies about diversity on runways, fashion runways, right? Literally those exact same issues exist in mannequins, as you're referring to. That would actually be a really good episode. Um, But I did want to give a shout out to Clarissa at LACMA, Clarissa Esqueda, because she did the Power Pattern exhibition that celebrated Central Asian ecots. And she put those ecots that are so often shown in 2D, she put them on 3D, three-dimensional mannequins. And I think it really changed the conversation and set a new precedent that I think a lot of museums should sit up and pay attention to, but we probably digress a little bit. That's its, its own topic and probably its own
1: episode. <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge fan of Clarissa's work. And one thing that I really um, like about her approach to curation is that she's very actually intimately involved in the guts of the object. She does a lot of pattern making and a lot of mannequin dressing herself. So she's quite the connoisseur.
2: Yes, and Dress Listener, she is coming on the show to talk about her Alexander Lee McQueen exhibit, so stay tuned for that. So another question I have, because we've been talking about the lives of objects, how, you know, their lives take on new meanings when they enter museum collections, but there are also objects that are quote-unquote dead, which I find very fascinating. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Oh, yeah, those are very very sad cases. So sometimes, you know, a garment can be so shattered or so compromised that no matter what approach or technique or trick that we try, we are totally unable to bring them back to life in any coherent or meaningful way. And so, you know, what does a museum do in these cases? And sometimes we relegate them to a study collection. So sometimes we might even deaccession them, which is the term used for removing things from a collection. But sometimes we also keep them because they're so fabulous, they're so rare, they're so important that, you know, it's been the job of the conservator and the collections manager. uh, We can never forget the importance of the collections manager in caring for these collections uh, to figure out how to keep these kinds of objects in some sort of stasis. We say that um, conservators actually manage change. We don't stop change. We just try to manage it. So when these objects are dead, and if we decide that we want to keep them, we try to keep them so that they don't degrade further, so that maybe someday, far in the future, there might be more research or technological advance or some technique that can resurrect them. And you know, when you're faced with a dead object, the question is, uh, how do you convey its meaning? How do you share it? with the public. And what's really cool is, of course, there's a lot of uh, advances with digital interventions that might use a combination of 3D scanning, photogrammetry, and animations to get across how an object might have worked or, you know, moved. But what I'm really drawn to is the potential of creating reproductions. And this might be a little contested, but I think that replicas, perhaps even if they were made by fashion designers or students working today using patterns that the conservators or curators are taking and other technical information, that these kinds of replicas can actually be didactic tools that really beautifully convey how an object was born or might have looked in motion. And you know, they could even be displayed next to the dead object or worn in a film or used um, I'm sure uh, Cassidy, you know this, used as a handling or teaching tool, like the museum at FIT does for their Paul Poray sort of oh, dress. That was literally <laughs> in my head. So <laughs> I I know you love your pore. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think that museums have fully explored the potential of reproductions in a way that enables a dead fashion object to live again through its proxy twin. You know, I've advocated for this in the past, when I was charged with conserving a fabulous and iconic work gown that was pretty much dead. It was virtually unconservable. Um, But I I did face resistance. And I think not considering replicas as a viable option is actually short-sighted for our field, since the reality is that fashion is not going to last forever. It was never meant to last forever. And so it's really prudent to try to replicate what we have when it still exists so that future generations can at least have a sense of what it might have been.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that worth, Dan, you're talking about, you wrote a whole paper about the process that you um, basically preserving it in a digital format for future generations. Right. Didn't you do like scanning of it and recreated it in all of these wonderful ways And again, you're also making it accessible to people, say, online, which I think is such a huge resource for people now that can't actually get anywhere in person. You can go online and see these garments, too.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential for documentation and how documentation can serve as this proxy body or proxy object for the actual object. And, you know, that can include images, technical analysis, condition reports, written reports. Animations, patterns, all of that stuff together. Yes, it does not give us the exact object. I totally get that. However, when that object is gone, we are going to be so glad that we have all of that.
2: Yeah. And there's experts, like you mentioned, Clarissa, she's done patterning that you can actually download on LACMA to recreate it yourself. But they get experts like that in the garments who can actually recreate it. And that Poire Sorbet gown that you're talking about, they've done that at FIT. So you can touch it and handle it and look inside. And it's really an invaluable resource in more ways than one. So completely agree.
1: And you know, the Charles James exhibition for the press preview, we really wanted people to be able to see one of his four-leaf clover gowns in, in motion. And of course, we don't want to put it on a living human body. We can talk more about why we don't later. However, for this instance, what we ended up doing is working with a Broadway designer to recreate the four-leaf clover. And then we had it worn on actually Electra Wiederman, who is Isabella Rossellini's daughter, for the... um, press preview and you got to see how the four-leaf clover, you know, the four-leaf clover bobbed and swayed uh, with her walk. It was really wonderful.
2: Yeah. And that's what makes fashion and textiles so unique to say versus paintings, right? And that these are embodied works of art that were meant to be worn. So, you know, that's why we display them on mannequins. And that's why, you know, there is this this urge to see them in motion and see them on real bodies. I mean, it just brings a whole new element to it that um, you can't really get with any other type of museum object.
1: That's correct.
2: So, as we've discussed, as creative agents, fashion conservators are integral to the life story of an object. And this is in innumerable ways. This includes being an advocate for the object's preservation. Fashionable dress is really its own unique entity in many ways, because in a museum collection, because it has this material but also immaterial value. Can you talk more about what that means in terms of the conservation and display of fashion objects and how the conservator has to balance the ethics of conservation with fashionable aesthetics? You know, we've all heard a lot about ethics of conversation with this Marilyn and Kim controversy, which we're going to get into next episode. But can you talk about how conservators balance that?
1: So some dress listeners might not know that conservators follow a code of ethics that require us to do no harm. So that means do no harm both to the objects and to those people or communities for whom those objects have meaning. And I've worked really, really hard throughout my career to not be seen as someone who just says, no, you can't do that. Um, instead, I've tried to creatively facilitate unique modes of display, even if these you know, modes of display are ethically challenging for me. And I, I think most conservators try to facilitate access and these stories of negotiations rarely make it outside the walls of the museums. And this push and pull between trying to keep within the bounds of one's ethical code while still trying to creatively address the request of the curator or designer can happen in many ways. And, and I'll tell you just one example. So when my team worked with Ray Kawakubo for her exhibition at the Met in 2017, uh, she wanted to use her usual lighting designer. His name is Terry Dreyfus, And he did all of her retail stores and runway shifts. And he's a genius lighting designer but not a museum designer. And so his plan was really unusual and challenging for us since it proposed using hundreds, and I mean hundreds, several hundreds of high wattage fluorescent bulbs at very high light levels. Now, if you've ever been to a fashion and textile exhibition, you're probably cursing the designer, the conservator since the lighting is so low. But the reason to keep the lighting low is that, you know, fabric is vulnerable to fading and degradation from light and all light exposure, no matter how short, no matter how low, will shorten the life of a garment. And so we try to meter out this exposure in small bits so that the garment can be passed on to future generations. We try not to use it all up. So going back to the exhibition, our predicament was that we wanted to protect the clothes while also honoring the artist's wishes to have light levels that were hundreds of times higher than we normally would recommend. And we had one thing on our side, which is that many of the objects in the exhibition were from her own archives. And since Ray was both the creator and owner of these garments, and so by all means, she was the most important stakeholder, we would be totally actually going against our ethics if we didn't go along with her wishes. So we decided that, hey, she gets what she wants. However, there were a few books that were from the Met's own collection and also from the collection of the Kyoto Costume Institute. And so what we tried really hard to do is work with the exhibition designer, Ray, and, and curator Andrew Bolton to figure out a place where, where we could move these objects in, into a more protected area so that we could achieve light levels closer to what we normally see in the museum. Now, I consider this outcome a total success because everyone achieved most of what they wanted. But whenever I'm faced with a really unusual situation like this, I try to learn lessons from it. And one way I can also learn lessons is by doing real-time aging or degradation um, experiments. And so in this instance, our team devised a real-time lighting exposure study where we took color measurements of some garments before and after display. And we also used standards like Google Cards to track the levels of fading. And we, we found that, as we had anticipated, light damage did occur under these circumstances. So what this experiment shows us is that maybe in the future, when we have non-conservation-appropriate displays being proposed, we could use this data to try to sway others as to the importance of the preventive measures that conservators advocate for.
2: Absolutely. And you, again, wrote a paper on that with Christopher Mazza, I believe, who is yes. uh, one of my FIT,
1: fellow FIT
2: students. Yes, he's one of classmates. And that was, was so fascinating because Ray, like you said, you worked directly with her, which is very unprecedented. And she was given like artistic license like no one's ever been given before. And she wanted it to be a democratic exhibition in that people could walk right up to her garments. Maybe even, I mean, maybe she wanted people to be able to touch them and handle them. And like, you know, all of us are like, oh my God, no, you cannot touch, cannot trust the public to get near anything. (laughs) Um, Maybe most people, but not everyone. But I just thought that was really interesting.
1: Yeah. When the public engages with art, we call those visitor interactions. Yes. Yes. They do like
2: to inter Yeah. And you relate to it and it's tan it's a you know, you wanna touch textiles. It's like I think that's innate to humans. So it's kind of like her wanting that to be part of it, I mean, could be interesting, but not something a
3: fashion conservator ever wants to hear. No. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta
2: Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today.
3: So join us,
2: dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.
2: We've talked a little bit now about the tools of your trade, and there's this wide spectrum of conservation treatments. Can we talk a little bit more about them, and kind of how do you determine the specific needs of a garment? What are the some of the like cooler things that you do to preserve or restore a garment? And
1: it's a such a wide ranging but wonderful question. Yeah. <laughs> a little touchy to try to uh, answer, but I think that you know a helpful way to think about our work is that we try to stabilize fashion objects while also improving their appearance. And sometimes the same task can work for both of those goals or sometimes we need to deploy a variety of approaches to achieve them. So I wanna talk about a few important concepts that guide our work. and the, The first concept is called minimal intervention. And this means that conservators explore solutions First, that only minimally impact the materiality of the garment. And then we venture on to more interventive solutions. So an example of this would be, you know, say we're stitching a garment that is strong enough to handle thread and the needle passing through it. And that's great. You know, if we can stitch a garment back together, if it's got a hole and we can repair it or a loose seam, that's that's wonderful. But if the garment is too weak to be able to sustain uh, a needle and thread passing through it, no matter how thin that needle is or how thin that thread is, then we might move on to something more interventive, which would be an adhesive treatment. And adhesive treatments are pretty scary. They can be difficult to apply and difficult to remove, but sometimes they're the only things that will work. And, you know, there are textile conservation treatments from way back when the field of textile conservation was forming in the early 20th century, late 19th century, that were essentially like stitched to death. And what we mean is that the conservators were so focused on stabilizing an object that they they put so many tiny, numerous holes into the object that the very act of removing the thread just leaves a textile that is peppered Throughout with pinholes and then it falls apart. So that goes to the second concept that I have, which is called retreatability or reversibility. They're actually kind of two concepts that are used somewhat interchangeably, but not totally. So originally, we used to say that we try to make all of our treatments reversible, which means that everything we do can be completely undone and it's as if we never left a trace you know we were never there and we've actually come to realize that like that's impossible to (laughs) attain because even the act of uh, passing a needle and thread through a fabric will leave even microscopically a tiny hole so now we say retreatable we aim for retreatability and retreatability means that essentially Our actions are guided by this goal so that we leave the object in a state where whatever we have done can be easily undone so that the object can then be retreated in the future using more advanced techniques and materials. And One thing to know about conservation is it's a young field and it's constantly developing. And so we know that the tools we have today are not going to be the tools that we will have at our service, you know, even five years from now. And so we want to make sure that whatever we're doing will be efficient and effective and bring it to its next, you know, bring the object to its next generation essentially, but that everything we do can be then undone. So I've talked about a little bit about stitching, but for silks that are shattering and powdering, perhaps the only option we have is an adhesive treatment. And adhesive treatments are theoretically reversible, although in practice, they're typically pretty hard to reverse, and that treatment might mean that we are left with nothing but silk dust. And so adhesive treatments are really typically only as a last resort. And one thing that is also not reversible but potentially retreatable is cleaning. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but wet cleaning, you know, which is what we call it when we wash something, if we say we wet clean it. Um, wet cleaning is a permanent process that cannot be undone, of course. It is highly interventive. And so we approach it really carefully. And there's been some really cool cutting-edge developments in cleaning textiles uh, using a variety of poulticing techniques or microemulsions or other carefully formulated recipes, techniques, and tools. And there are a lot of people using these advances, but I would love to call out Laura Mina, who is now at the National Museum for African American History and Culture, and she used to work with us. At a costume Institute, um, she has really done some amazing work in developing um, cleaning techniques and passing along that knowledge as well, teaching other conservators.
2: That was definitely one of my favorite classes at FIT. Um, Dress listeners, you probably remember. We learned so much in that program, the Fashion Museum Studies program, because you really get this wide swath of training, including by one, Sarah Scaturo, who taught there when I was there. Um,
1: Yeah, I I think I was your teacher, right? (laughs) Yeah, you were my teacher.
2: I think you did the costume. You came in and did a mounting session with us um, in June Beauvais' class. Um, But we also got to take conservation training with Denise. and. Washing textiles was, you know, one of the one of the more fun elements of that. Vacuuming textiles is another really interesting thing that I don't think a lot of people consider. That's how you get, like, bugs out and all kinds of stuff out using a vacuum on textiles. But I'm sure a lot of people listening are also thinking, like, wow, I really damage my clothing a lot just by wearing it every day and then by washing it. You would not believe how much you damage your clothing and, like, remove the life of your garment by washing it, which is why I always say... Don't wash it unless it smells or you have a stain on it. Don't do it.
1: (laughs) And and frankly, don't dry clean unless you have to. I mean, dry cleaning is actually a pretty gross procedure if you think about it.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'm curious if you've ever had to innovate a technique or techniques to solve a particular problem. I remember when you gave me a tour of the CI um, one year and I came in and you had like an Iris Van Herpen dress and like a bubble and you were like basically creating its own ecosystem to preserve and like store this garment. So can you kind of talk about some of those like more innovative ways that you have to get with like these weird three-dimensional artifacts that you're trying to preserve?
1: Oh, yeah, totally. Um, well, that piece in particular, it was this amazing Irish set turban. It's a uh, dress called the moon dress. and It was made from polyurethane foam. And for any of you who know about polyurethane foam, you know, it doesn't have a very long shelf life. And it's very susceptible to oxidation or oxygen, right? And so our only real hope to prolong its life was to store it anoxically. And so... We were working with the amazing collections management team at the Costume Institute to develop this kind of cage that this dress, which was so heavy that it had to be um, stored on a dress form, that this dress could be stored in. And then we would create a a bubble made out of a ceramic coated material that um, this bubble would then be pumped full of argon. And would live happily ever after in its own anoxic bubble, except for, of course, (laughs) when it had to be on display, (laughs) it would be removed. But no, conservators are so creative. Uh, I think some of my favorite innovations are perhaps not the most exciting and you won't ever really see, but they're kind of the rigging and temporary mounting systems that we develop so that we can access and treat a difficult or complex three-dimensional area of a garment. So, when we think about this, you know, when we make these temporary mounts, they have to be safe, they have to provide access for us to carry out our work, they need to be stable, and they need to fit within a designated footprint of a busy conservation lab. And so, those are actually pretty, um, you know, high level of criteria that they need to fit. And sometimes they can be as simple as, you know, you, Specifically hanging a, a bias cut gown on a pole a certain way so that when you steam it, you're steaming the fabric with the grain, you know, it's falling towards gravity appropriately, you know, you don't want to st- ever steam a bias cut dress against the grain, for example, or it could be completely complex. So uh, one of our fellows at the Customs Institute, Marina Hayes, had this amazing Marisol painted leather coat that was just, I mean, it was pretty much almost a dead object and she did a magnificent job resurrecting it. But she had to develop this really, really complex system with clamps, pads, magnets, and poles so that she could just kind of get in there and humidify certain parts. And in fact, the field of mount making overall yeah, there's an amazing Instagram called the International Mount Makers. <laughs> <Ooh. laughs> yeah, really, really cool. But just the mounts that you see in museums, which are designed to be invisible, aesthetically like blend in with the object and yet completely support and stabilize the object. Those are some of the most magnificent pieces of art that show such incredible craftsmanship. But if I could speak of one, one other technique that my team developed when I was at the, the CI for the Death Becomes Our exhibition. It was a really cool project where we were trying to find a way to recreate the historic Clooney lace trim that was used on a half-morning gown. And it was really hard to find this type of lace anywhere. You know, we couldn't just like go to a store or go online or even go to France and find the exact replica that we needed. And so, What, you know, we we could have uh, spent a lot of money and um, had a lace maker try to recreate it, but that would have also taken a lot of time and been very cost prohibitive. So what we ended up doing was working with an embroiderer who used high-res photos of the extant lace portions. And she then created a digital pattern that was fed into a digital embroidery machine. And then it was embroidered onto a dissolvable substrate in colors that mimic the faded black-brown, you know, of the original black lace. And then we use these embroidered uh, patches, essentially, these embroidered fills to compensate for holes in the lace. And what was really genius about it was that we could actually apply the fills over any vestigial kind of raggedy lace bits that were still left, so we didn't have to remove any original material. And because we documented everything, and because you know, to an expert, you could look at it and say, "Hey, that's not real you know, lace. You know, this is an embroidered um, lace-like patch." In the future, anybody can just go in and snip those threads off and remove the fills, and you have the extant, you know, vestiges of the lace underneath.
2: Yeah, and again, that's so central to what you do, right? If you can see the conservator's hand, then you haven't done a good job, right? <laughs> and I always think of when I think about invisible mounts, um, Charles James gowns. Can you talk a little bit about those? Because those really require um, very specific mounts, not just for exhibition, but also for storage. And it's so cool what like you and your team have done, for instance, to preserve those gowns.
1: Yeah, so for Charles James, the exhibition had these beautiful invisible mounts that were made by the C.I.'s amazing mannequin dresser, Joyce Fong, and the exhibition itself, if you didn't know or if you didn't have the opportunity to visit it, was full of all of these technologies these technological apparatuses you know including robots and animations and video cameras i mean there was just so much technology going on that um, it was it was really an interesting way to try to explicate and and reveal charles james's genius in how he constructed his gowns but what it did do is it it ended up giving the conservators a good idea we started thinking about okay. Well, how could we use technology that was actually used in the exhibition to try to create storage mounts to safely store his gowns? So I I think most of your listeners are probably aware of the fact that like James's gowns are not, they they don't go flat and they can't really hang. (laughs) You know, they, they actually have to be stored on a human like body and they have to be, you know, These bodies have to be tailor-made to the actual object. And so what we did is we ended up scanning the dress forms that Joyce had made and had padded up to the dress's proportions. And one of our genius interns who um, is now an objects conservator um, down at the Kershorn Museum, she essentially scanned these forms and then worked with a company to route these forms in archival epiphone, and then ended up um, creating these poles that would stick through. And these poles could be used as both as hanging mechanisms or as invisible mounting mechanisms. And I mean, now these, hopefully these dresses are good and stored appropriately okay. for, you know, the next 75 to 100 years. And, you know, this project wouldn't have been possible without the guidance of Glenn Peterson, who Ian Stone is the most talented fashion conservator in the world.
2: He's so famous in our circle, right? Like everybody in fashion <laughs> studies and museums, and like knows who Glenn is.
1: Yeah, yeah, there, there is no one like him, and it was a real honor to be able to work with him for as many years as I got to work with him.
2: You've talked a little bit about different materials. What are some of the most common conservation issues to be found in dress collections and how do you treat them? Things like the 1960s fashion revolution, like none of those clothes were supposed to last and they're in museum collections, like really possibly hurting other other <laughs> items in these collections.
1: Yeah, they're they're what you would call malignant objects. Yeah. Right? They, <laughs> they are not benign. They're malignant. So yeah, I would say, you know, there are probably at least three things that would make a fashion conservator kind of quake in their lab coats. Um, Those three things would be shattered silk, iron-oriented fabrics, and degrading plastics. So all of these issues are what we call an inherent vice. And that is the term that we use to reference a characteristic intrinsic to an object that causes its own self-destruction. So you can't actually remove this vice from an object without destroying it. And so this characteristic just makes an object eventually kill itself. And so silks, particularly those that were made in the later 19th century and around the turn of the century, were often sold by weight at the time. And manufacturers realized that they could make the silk way more and thus get more money by adding tin salts. And unfortunately, tin salts over time have caused the silk polymers to actually fracture and season. So, unfortunately, this has caused silks from this time to shatter like glass or simply powder away, and there is no stopping this. And it's very, very difficult to treat. You know, we usually advise preventive measures and then, as much as before, adhesive treatment. But adhesive treatments, besides being potentially irreversible, they alter the look and the drape of the fabric. And so they're not really a great solution always. So then there are um, iron mordanted fabrics. And these are typically cottons, could be linens or other other types of fibers. And these have issues where areas that were dyed using iron mordanted dyes, which were typically dark brown or black colors, will actually just drop out, like they, like this, this area will completely degrade, shatter, break. And so the Cooper Hewitt has an amazing textile where um, all of these stars are dyed with black dye and the stars have all dropped out. And so you, oh, no. you hold it up to light and you have, <laughs> you have a fabric that just has like areas, you know, clear areas or areas that have no fabric in them. And so for that, for iron mordant dye degradation, the only thing that you can do is try to minimize and disguise the loss. There's nothing you can really do. And then plastics. Well, plastics are my specialty. I, I love plastics, but they, they can drive you crazy. There are so many plastics that have issues. Um, and perhaps the most well known are cellulose acetate, which breaks down and off gases acetic acid. Um, that's the plastic that's typically in your eyeglasses or cellulose nitrate, uh, which off-gasses nitric acid as it breaks down. And nitric acid, if you don't know, is very, very combustible. (laughs) So (laughs) it actually is a danger to the collection and is usually disposed of or stored very carefully. But one plastic that I've done a lot of research on is thermoplastic polyurethane, which is used as a textile coating. And this material you will find typically on like fake leather objects or vegan leather objects. Um, sometimes it's misidentified as PVC. So like a lot of Andre Karej from the 1960s, they may say vinyl, but it's actually thermoplastic polyurethane. And this material is so difficult to understand, and it is so difficult to manage, treat, and even identify, that I am part of an international project called Glossy Surfaces that is run out of Moda Museum in Antwerp and it's it's spearheaded by Kim Birkins, who is the fashion conservator there. And so this international consortium is trying to study and research and understand this object more so that we can alert fashion caretakers to its both its presence and what to do with it. And we're actually going to be hosting a conference on this material next year if any of your listeners are interested.
2: I mean, this is such a fascinating topic. I could literally talk to you about this all day, just like all of the, you know, things you've seen and these different collections you've worked in. I'm wondering if before you go today, you can maybe talk to us a little bit about, is there like a most memorable, exciting, or unexpected experience you've had working in conservation? I've worked as a collections manager before, and just the the gift of like opening a drawer that's never been opened or hasn't been opened for 50 years or whatnot—
1: I would say I have three favorite, but I i would be lying. I have so many favorite um, (laughs) (laughs) stories and memories, but I would say two of the most incredible and special opportunities I had was working at the CI. The first I got to visit the Palace Museum in Beijing when it was closed because my job was to courier the last emperor of China uh, Puyi's, his childhood dragon robe, from the Palace Museum to the Met for the China for the Looking Glass Exhibition. It was such an honor, and it was so special to be there, especially when it was closed. And closely aligned to that, the second was getting to work in the sacristy of the Sistine Chapel at the Vatican. My gosh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Wow. I, got to enter and exit through the Sistine Chapel when it was closed and thus empty. And, you know, this was for the incredible display of the Vatican's vestments for the Heavenly Bodies exhibition. And, you know, both of those opportunities were courtesy of exhibitions that Andrew Bolton curated. And I do want to say that recently my favorite experiences have been the expansion in my understanding of how textiles are conserved in other areas. And what I mean is, now that I'm a chief conservator, I am getting exposed to how paintings are conserved. And paintings are often painted on canvas. You know, I'm getting exposed to how East Asian paintings are conserved. And those are typically uh, mounted with historic and antique silks, which is so amazing. And then of course I enter the objects lab and there are chairs and boxes and dolls and you know anything that can be made with textiles. And so what's been really exciting for me is learning both about other conservation disciplines, but also really understanding the place of textiles within these other disciplines and getting exposed to the cross-pollination of ideas that occurs. Within our own conservation suite, because all of our labs are housed right next to each other in their own kind of hermetic, you know, suite, which is a really beautiful, beautiful facility. So I would say I, I've been very inspired in my new role to try to continue to learn and hone my craft and understanding.
2: So before I let you go, I mean, I think a lot of people listening are going to say, okay, Sarah has the dream job or has had and has, you know, series of dream jobs. You also worked at the Keeper Hewitt, you know, really getting to intimately know these collections and these pieces um, in ways that most of us will only ever get a dream about, right? We're never going to get to touch a poire or bay gown or um, the emperor of China's robe so do you have any advice for people who are listening who are now like, I want to be a fashion conservator or a conservator in general? Do you have any advice for people out there that are now considering this, this job? Because I think they are.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, I used to tell future conservators to hustle, but now I'm really cautious of that word because it, it glorifies an unsustainable approach to one's career and has the potential to also demean one's value. And so I want to be honest, you know, getting into conservation, it is hard today. There are a lot of roadblocks, including a significant amount of requirements that you would need to take to even get into a traditional conservation master's program. So these requirements can include several thousands of hours of what is called pre-program experience, which is really just prior internships or work, as well as many chemistry, fine art and art history courses. And these programs themselves are around three or four years long. And once you get out, you are lucky if you get a fellowship that is paid in the forty thousands. So, it's a tough road to become a conservator. And once you actually become a conservator, there is no guarantee that you are going to get a full time permanent position. You know, I, I don't want to dissuade people, but I do want to be very honest about the state of the field. And I think the field recognizes the unsustainability and the issues it has with gatekeeping or not facilitating easier entry into it. Now, if you know you really just want to go to fashion and textile conservation, I do also want to say that many conservation schools don't actually really support textile conservation, Um, and so I would advise aspiring fashion and textile conservators to look at the schools that offer degrees specific to textiles, and which, as of today, are the Fashion Institute of Technology, which, you know, is the program you and I went to, Cassidy, but there's also the University of Glasgow Center for Textile Conservation, the Albeg Foundation in Switzerland, or the University of Rhode Island. And lastly, I mean, there are a few scarce and hard won routes into the field today through the apprenticeship model, which still does exist, even though it's not very common. And so being an apprentice means you learn on the job. And if you are trying to do this, you would probably almost certainly be working um, alongside a private conservator. You would still need to supplement your training with coursework in the sciences or by taking workshops and reading and studying avidly. So fashion conservation is a small field. And so we all know each other. That means if you can make a meaningful connection with just one conservator, then that person might be able to introduce you to the next and so on and so on. And so, you know, conservators are generous and we want to help you out. And so please don't be afraid to reach out, including to myself.
2: Oh, that's a wonderful invitation. Thank you. And thank you so much for being here and for being so generous with your time and your knowledge and your
3: experience. This has been really wonderful.
1: Thank you so much,
3: Cassidy. Dress listeners, that concludes today's episode, but not our conversation with Sarah. As promised, she will return Thursday to discuss that now infamous Met Gala moment and why the preservation of historically and culturally significant dress matters. You do not want to miss it. Until then, may you consider the many people that work behind the seams of our garments next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you, so please email us at at
2: dress.iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you'll find images or reels accompanying each week's episode. And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support.
3: And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. More dress coming your way on Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.